Father, thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. And thank you that Jesus is such a beautiful name. And we get to talk about him today. Father, in all the issues uh, that are pressing upon us, whether it's economic, uh, fear over politics, or military, or terrorism, biological, Lord, we, we come back and, and feel strengthened and encouraged in Christ and Christ alone. So may he be honored and glorified and in these words and that you would give me grace, um, that you would give us your spirit to understand what without the spirit is not understandable. Not, transform, not transformatively understandable. And so, Father, give us that now for the glory of your name and for the benefit of your church. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm excited about a book that is supposed to be coming out. It's, it's entitled Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. And, and it's, it's a book about, let me just read what the uh, publisher has written. It says, writing for an error dominated by recession, gridlock, and fears of American decline. The author exposes the spiritual roots of the nation's political and economic crises. He argues that America's problem isn't too much religion, as the growing chorus of atheists have argued, nor is it an intolerant secularism, as many of the Christian right believe. Rather, it's bad religion the slow-motion collapse of traditional faith, and the rise of a variety of pseudo-Christianities that stroke our egos, indulge our follies, and encourage our worst impulses. So the book is going to center on when, when religion moves man to the center, then it's going to go awry, just a matter of time. It makes us feel good initially, but it will go awry but a religion that has a faith that has Christ at the center is radically different. And Matthew's point in this gospel is to put Christ at the center of your lives. We've already talked about it. He's very, very, he's very bold. He's right out front. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, promised of God, sent by God as the Savior of the world. That's very clear. comes right out of the gate with it. And he's going to show us how the birth of Christ is going to prove that and advance that in your mind. Because his intention, remember now, Matthew's writing this gospel for a people that he knows has not, have not walked with Christ. So he's writing with a clear intention, not simply to instruct, but to transform. He doesn't want us just reading and saying, oh, that's an interesting thought about Jesus, I didn't consider that. No, he wants us reading it and being overwhelmed, arrested by it. So we're like, well, that has huge impact and implications for my life. That's the intent of reading the Bible, not simply for informational transfer. That, that's necessary at its level, but that we would be changed by it. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 1. And although we do read it all the time at Christmas, it clearly is it's well beyond Christmas, as Jack was giving word. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, okay, I should bring you back to last week, 
Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call him his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Okay, this is, I love it. It's straightforward. It's fresh. It's not trying to answer all the questions that you may have. It's just coming right out. It follows 1 to 17, if you remember. Matthew gives a genealogy. He's listed the human lineage of Jesus. Jesus was a man. He came. Look at all these men he came from. And now Matthew moves right to, okay, well, this is his lineage. Here's how he was born. Now, remember, it says that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. So betrothal is a word that we use, but don't use it in the same way they did then. Betrothal was a period of time, a year, where a couple uh, was considered married. And they had all the privileges of marriage except that of sexual intimacy. It was a binding arrangement, usually made before. And it was something that if to get out of a betrothal, one would need to be divorced. That if someone was unfaithful in the period of betrothal, they were subject to stoning. So this is an incredibly committed couple right here, Joseph and Mary. And now Joseph finds her pregnant. Perhaps he saw it. Perhaps she tried to explain it. That's a huge problem. She's pregnant. But what's worse is she's saying that she's still a virgin. Now, clearly, think for a minute, Joseph's heart. Dealing with the betrayal of she's carrying another man's child. But then the deceit that is on top of that, well, no, I'm still a virgin. You know, you're kind of twisted for Joseph right now. I mean, you're torn between anger. Joseph would have been feeling anger, but, but also just a deep sadness. I thought it was this way. I thought we had this, and now look what we have. And so Joseph, you know, while he's passive in the sense of he's not the main character in the stories we're going to find, it's God, but, but you can you just kind of feel sorry for the guy. And, and what, what a gentleman, what, what graciousness and kindness that he doesn't want to expose her publicly. He's going to divorce her quietly. This is when God steps in, of course, sends an angel, and the angel says to Joseph this, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this child is from the Spirit. Now, remember last week, when we went through the genealogy, it was a father of, a father of, a father of, a father of. Then when we got to Joseph, it was the husband of Mary. In other words, it's very clear that Jesus had no earthly father in terms of biological father. Joseph, as the son of David, was his legal father, but not biological father. There's no father. There's no sexual intimacy. There's no human intervention of any kind. What Matthew is saying is simply this, that Jesus Christ was placed in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, conceived by the Spirit. There's no other explanation given. Simply by faith, believing that God did that to bring forth the Son. This is what we call the hypostatic union. This personal union of both a divine nature and a human nature. Jesus was human, son of Abraham, son of David. Jesus is divine, son of God. This is what the Christian faith has taught from the beginning, as you see it in the first chapter of Matthew. 
Now, I recognize for many folks here, perhaps for non-Christians here, this is a difficult pill to swallow. I mean, it's hard to understand. It's unique. Um, It's even considered by many as anti-intellectual, that if you want to believe in Christianity, set your mind at the door and then come on in and worship. Now, I I would empathize that it is clearly a unique event, and unique events are hard to understand. But I do want to remind you that it is in the nature of a miracle to be unique. I mean, that is the point of a miracle. So whether it's the virgin birth or God creating the world by his word, the nature is that it's not observable, it's not repeatable, it's not easily understood. That's what a miracle is. But I think there's something more going on for many people that struggle with this. I think, really, it's not simply the virgin birth that's the struggle. I think the struggle comes from not thinking that natural laws of the universe can be interrupted, that these natural laws just continue on their way with no interruption. Because my contention would be to the non-Christian or to the one who thinks that to believe in the virgin birth is anti-intellectual, I would say it's really not that way at all. Because the, the person who doesn't believe, the person who tends to disbelieve in the virgin birth, tends to already believe that God either doesn't exist or doesn't intersect the affairs of humans. So, so, so it's really no different. The, the person who doesn't believe in the virgin birth doesn't believe because they don't believe that, that God exists. Now, the Christian believes that God exists, and the Christian believes that God is able to, if he exists, to interrupt these laws or to supersede laws or to suspend laws, that God's able to bring about a birth of a child other than the normal process that we're aware. But the irony of the discussion is it's not intellectual versus anti-intellectual. It's they believe already that God doesn't exist and therefore it doesn't make sense. The Christian believes that God does exist and it makes sense. So both are believing. It's both a matter of faith for parties. It's not anti-intellectual, intellectual. It's, this is what I believe, this is what I believe. It's faith. So the atheist or the agnostic or the one who disbelieves is a man of faith, just like the Christian is. But for those who do believe in the virgin birth, uh, it might surprise you to know that 75% actually of those polled in America believe in the virgin birth. I was wondering what percentage understand why the virgin birth is so central and essential to the faith. A couple of reasons that I want to instruct you on and encourage you about is simply this, that, that number one, the, the incarnation, the virgin birth, Jesus being both God and man is essential for us to understand how a holy and perfect God can be reconciled to a sinful, broken humanity. There is no other way of explaining this other than God just foregoes his justice in dealing with sin. But the only way to reconcile a perfect, holy, just, righteous God and a sinful, broken humanity has to be through this God-man, this Jesus who is fully man, so he can represent us. He's like us in every way. And so he can represent us, and yet at the same time, he's fully God, so he can provide a sacrifice that is sufficient to meet the demands of a righteous, holy God. So Jesus becomes both representative and redeemer. But the virgin birth is also very essential for us to understand the nature of our gospel as being heavy laden with grace. In other words, you don't see Joseph and Mary playing the primary roles here. They're rather passive in the narrative. 
God is the primary mover. He's the one that brings forth the power to bring the conception of the child. He's the one that explains what's happening. God's the one that has intended it as written in Isaiah. God's the one that brings it about. So when we say that salvation belongs to the Lord, it really does. It's all of his, and I'm thankful for that. It's where it needs to rest. So the first thing we see in this story is clearly a clear representation over this is the nature of Christ. This is what you are to walk away with from this morning, that he is fully God and he's fully man, perfectly united in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, but to understand these two natures is necessary as to understand his two names, and his names represent what he's going to do. So I want to tell you about the nature of Christ and the work of Christ, and the work of Christ is seen in his names. I'll take the second first. You see it in that quote from Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel. So one of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel. Now, there is great debate over Isaiah 7 among scholars. There is debate over whether when it was said about the virgin, in Hebrew it means young maiden, not necessarily virgin. And so it could have been Hezekiah, the son of King Ahaz. Was Isaiah referencing that? Or was it the son of Isaiah himself? And there's further debate over whether this text was even seen to be a Messianic text at both the time of Isaiah and even the time of Jesus. Well, at the end of the day, it makes for a fruitful discussion, but I'll just go with the angel here. Unless the angel got his wings crossed or something, he pretty much says that this was to fulfill what was written, that this Emmanuel or Jesus would be God with us. It was the intent of God to beget a son that would be fully equal to himself dwelling among a people, among a lost people. His intent was that Jesus would embrace and experience our weakness, our struggles, our fatigue, the things that we go through in life that are very, very difficult. It was God's intent that Jesus would explain God to us. We see that in the Gospel of John, the first chapter. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known, or he has exegeted him, or he has explained God to us. So God graciously, mercifully, has given Jesus so that the world would understand him, see him. There's no way we can understand God apart from Christ. There's no way. I know. This is counterintuitive to us because we think religion is my attempts to incrementally improve to get to God. Whether you take an Eastern philosophy and you say reincarnation, or you take a Western philosophy and you have this list of moralisms, either way they're both paths to reach God. There's no reaching God. If you just take creation alone as a slight indication of his glory, now you would never equate creation with God. Creation is only a subset. It's only a faint reflection of his glory and power. And so if you just take the size of creation, so I'm going to read this to you about the size of the universe. I'm just talking now just sheer size of what we understand our universe to be. Okay, so our universe is estimated to have at least hundreds of billions of galaxies, right, galaxies, spread out over a spherical region about a million times larger in diameter than our galaxy. So, so what we understand of universe is our galaxy, and then it's a million times beyond that. Okay. Now, 
In other words, you and everything, okay, so a spherical region about a million times larger in diameter than our galaxy is. In other words, you and everything you know resides on a tiny wet rock nearly a million times less massive than the star that powers it. In a solar system, one ten millionth the diameter of our galaxy, which contains at least 100 billions of stars not so different from ours, in a universe filled with hundreds of billions of galaxies. Do you just feel yourself going boom, 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 down so far? Now, if that's the size of what God has created as a universe, how much greater and glorious is God? And so for us to think, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to be a good person, and I'm going to impress this God. I mean, it, it begs, Jesus had to come by necessity. There was no moving to God. That's the, that's the falsity of man's religion is thinking we're going to get to God. God had to come to us. And it's glorious benefits to us because he has. I mean, think about it for a minute. Jesus coming as fully God gives us hope in the midst of our struggles. I mean, clearly, he raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He cleansed the leper. He freed the demonized. His power is without measure. That is the one that has come to us. That our hope is affixed to something transcendent, not temporal and limited. But not only that, we also have this Jesus who's fully man. So he understands our struggles, that we can approach Jesus in the midst of all of our weaknesses. I mean, the fact that you toil and you fatigue, you're struggling in relationships, you're insecure, you feel weak. Jesus was fully human. You can run to him even in your sin. Now, this is what I find ironic about the Christian. I I even find it ironic about my own life, that when I have collapsed before temptation, I'm often drawing back from Jesus so that I can build up some devotions and maybe evangelize or do something good where God will love me again, and then I can go back to him. But the beauty of the incarnation is that even in my sin, I can draw near to him. Why? Because he's been tempted in every way, the scripture says yet without sin. Now, that used to make me think, well, yeah, but really. I mean, he's been tempted, but he hasn't sinned, and therefore I really can't approach him in my sin because I keep failing, and he doesn't. And yet here's what C.S. Lewis kind of opened my eyes to, that Jesus, it says in Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus is just the man we have to go to in our sin. Why? Well, because he has endured the full brunt of the temptation. I keep collapsing halfway through. So I don't even know what it really means to go through a full temptation without collapsing. But he does. And so when you and I break down in sin, we collapse before temptation. Nobody knows the power of temptation better than he does. And we can run to him. We can find repair in him. Very encouraging. This is why C.S. Lewis wrote, He said, how thankful I am, in one of his personal letters, he says, how thankful I am that when God became a man, he didn't choose to become a man of iron nerves. That would have not helped weaklings like you and me nearly so much, that he's very approachable. So the first thing we see is that Jesus, as the God-man, has come to be Emmanuel, God with us. Folks, that's refreshing. It's encouraging. You have a place to repair. You have Jesus to run to. This is the glorious news Matthew is encouraging with us. But secondly, his name is Jesus. That's the second name the angel gave him. And I want to spend a little more time on this. Because Jesus means God saves. You know, the Hebrew word is Yeshua or Joshua. And it means God saves. Now, many times the word 
uh, is used in Scripture as God delivering people from physical struggles. Matthew doesn't let us go there. He says that this Jesus, you're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, not from their idiosyncrasies, not from their faults. In other words, when they're saved or when they come become a Christian, they can still be a bit of a, of a pill sometimes. But he's going to save them from their sins, not political aggression or political corruption, I should say, military aggression, economic downturns. He's going to save us from their sins. This was said at his birth. Jesus affirms it early in ministry. He says, hey, it's not the, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, I've come to call the sinners. So Jesus' mission was to dwell among a people, but it was also to save us from our sins. Now let me explain this. Sin, I think, at least a biblical understanding, has kind of gone the way of the dodo bird. Uh, people, now, I was surprised to read a stat, actually, that in America, 87% of people believe in the concept of sin. Now, they don't know what it really is, but they believe that it exists as a category. And most of the people polled speak about like child pornography and child abuse and adultery and, and uh, that sort of thing as what a sin would be. Uh, these kind of disrespectable sins, these kind of blatant or flagrant sins is how most people would define sin. I, I would say to the church, most of us, that's not an issue for. Most of us, I know some of us, it probably is. Most of us, it's not. But, but I would remind you that these other sins that people tend to define, they tend to define sin by what we do. And, and so we go to the flagrant sins. But, but there are also non-flagrant sins, right? There are respectable sins, as Jerry Bridges calls them. There are sins that may be a little bit more appropriate to discuss in this group. Uh, sins such as maybe self-control. Not having it, I mean. Uh, in terms of food, or in terms of entertainment, or materialism, or perhaps ingratitude. And gratitude is a, is a kind of a respectable sin. It kind of flies under the radar a little bit. That, that you know, with ingratitude, I'm just, I'm just not really thankful as a person. I'm always complaining about something. I've always got to grumble. I've always got a beef against something. You know, that's kind of a respectable sin. It's kind of easier to hide. Or perhaps discontent. Discontent is kind of, in a way, just saying, God, I'm, I'm long-term discontent is kind of saying, God, I'm really not satisfied with your plan for me. I'm really not, not happy with the way you're running my, my little universe here. Or perhaps it's pride, pride over theological systems. Reformed people can be very subject to, to this theological pride. Or independence, that flies under the radar screen. You know, you come in and you have every, you're fully intending that no one is going to tell me what to do. To submit to church leadership when they're as dumb as I am, I'm not going to submit to that. And that's what we think. Those are more of the respectable sins. But I don't, think, I don't think Matthew's even speaking about that at that level. I think he is, actually. Those are sins. I think there's something more. We don't want to define sin by what we do, but we want to first define sin by who we are. We want to define sin by who we are. I think this, Jesus was getting to this when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard it said don't commit adultery or don't commit murder, but I say to you, if anyone is angry towards his brother, he's liable to judgment. In other words, Jesus goes beneath the surface of what we do, and he's actually going to who we are. See, the nature of man, apart from God, is very much wanting to be God. I don't want to submit my life to God. I want to run my universe as it pleases me. You can call this You can call this nature of man autonomous, 
self-rule, this is really the basis of sin, is I want to live in a way without regard for God. That God has created you, he sustains you for his glory, for his purposes to live according to his word, and yet you live day by day by day giving little thought to God. That is the essence of sin. It's autonomy. I want to be my own God in my own universe. And Jesus has come to save us, frankly, from ourselves. He's come to give us new birth. That's why we have this expression. Paul speaks about new creation, or John speaks about being born. Jesus speaks about being born again. We need a a nature transformation. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in London, kind of articulated it this way. He said, to think that man can change apart from this regenerating work of God would be like catching a tiger in the wild, bringing him back, and training him to be a vegetarian. You can't do it. I mean, the, the, the tiger is built to eat meat. It hunts and eats meat. You cannot just feed it vegetation and think it's just going to start eating it. It can't. It won't. It'll die because it needs the meat. And so every one of us, we've been born with a nature that is in opposition to God. And Jesus has to save us from ourselves. Now, this is good news in a way. For you to get this is good news, because if you think that the nature is not the problem. It's just the fact that you're breaking the rules. If you think that is the nature of sin alone, then what's going to happen is for you to change, you just got to be a rule keeper. So if it's a rule breaking that's the problem, simply, then just become a rule keeper. Well, there's two problems with this. If you're good at it, you'll be smug and self-righteous. If you're bad at it, you're going to struggle with despair. Thinking sin is simply breaking the rules. It's just going to make you either in despair or in absolute pride and self-righteousness. He came to save us from ourselves. Do you understand that? That your nature is without hope other than Christ regenerating you, giving you new life. But secondly, he came to save us from our sins and the penalty of death. It's very, very clear that in Jesus' death, he put death to death. It's a famous line from John Owen, that he put death to death in his death. That the penalty of sin, you know that. You see people die. You know people die every single day. And you know what sin does. It creates both a a physical death, but it also creates a spiritual death. It ruptures our relationships with each other, with God, even with nature. And so Jesus coming to die has come to die for us so that we wouldn't have to die. Now, even though we will go through physical death, it is just leading to life. Because Jesus resurrecting was the first fruits. And all those who have faith in him will follow. So when Jesus said, when the angel said he will save his people from their sins, he was saying he's going to save you from your nature, which is warped to God. He's going to save you from the result of your sin, which is death. And he's also going to save you from the power of sin. This is really important. When Jesus came to die for our sins, he came to destroy the dominion of sin in your life. Listen, when I, before I was a believer, I could try not to sin and I couldn't not sin. In other words, I was a slave to sin, Paul says in Romans 6. I didn't call it sin, but it was self-serving. It was living apart from God. It wasn't necessarily a mean, flagrant sin. It wasn't one of those things. I may have acted in a moral way, but it was for immoral purposes. Because God was never a picture in my world, and yet I was living in his world as his creation. And that's the ultimate sin. And so he's come to save us from the power of sin. He wants to give us, by Jesus coming and dying, and he says, it's good that I go away, if you remember why. 
Because he said, I'm going to send another comforter. That is the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is going to dwell within you. And you're going to be able to live like Christ now, overcoming sin. Not immediately, but that progressive, transforming from glory to glory. We can change. We can live differently. That's the point. Paul writes this in First um, Second Corinthians. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, we can begin living not with us at the center of the universe, but with him at the center of the universe. We can live differently. That's the point. Jesus didn't just die so that we'd be forgiven and go to heaven. I talked about that last week. He died so that we'd be forgiven, but then we'd live like he would live, and we would be his people. In fact, Ken Meyer is kind of a, a writer on, on um, cultural dynamics in the church. He says, the church is not simply in the business of getting individuals saved. So I try to use that term because I think we hear saved and we think, okay, now I'm going to heaven. The church's task is to nurture and shape its members into disciples who observe everything their Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth, has commanded them. Charles Spurgeon says the same thing. Listen to what he said 200 years ago, and tell us if it doesn't. Tell me if you don't think it fits. He says, many persons, if they ask about their understanding, sorry, he can write it, I can't even read it. Many persons, if they are asked what they understand by salvation, will reply, being saved from hell and taken to heaven. Now, I've heard that. This is one result of salvation, but it's not one tithe of what is contained in that boon. It is true that our Lord Jesus does redeem all his people from the wrath to come. He saves them from the fearful condemnation which their sins had brought upon them. But his triumph is far more complete than this. He saves his people from their sins. Oh, sweet deliverance from our worst foes. Where Christ works a saving work, he casts Satan from his throne and will not let him be master any longer. None of us is truly a Christian if sin reigns in our mortal body. Sin will be in us. It will never be utterly expelled until the Spirit enters glory, but it will never have dominion over us. There will be a striving for dominion, a lusting against the new law and the new spirit which God has implanted, but sin will never get the upper hand so as to be absolute monarch of our nature. So we will be different, and that's part of why he came to die, that you would be different now, not just when you get to heaven, not just change when you get there, but that we'd be different now. So when it says here, that Jesus is the God-man. He's Emmanuel, God with us, accessible to every believer, and he has come to save us from our sins. And you see the depth of what that means. So what do we do with this? What did Joseph do with it? Well, Joseph, it says he considered these things. He considered them. And then he, I think, exercised faith after considering it. You know, it's Matthew Henry, the great Puritan pastor, he says, um, uh, he says that the Lord gives guidance to the thoughtful, not to the unthinking. He guides the thinking. I'm asking you to consider what Joseph did. He acted in faith against what appears to be she was unfaithful. She's pregnant with another man's wife. He <laughs> believed the word of God as it was given to him. He took her in. And he uh, did not have sexual relations with her until after the birth of the baby. That's clear when it says until. So the Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary would fly in the face of a scripture like this. 
and he named the child Jesus. So Joseph is a classic example of that's the word of God. Everything right in front of my physical eyes says something different. I'm going to believe the word of God and go forward by faith with obedience. So you have a choice here. You know, when you hear this teaching and this story, you have a choice. You can, I think many of us fall into one of two camps. Well, I think some of us, well, I'm not going to say that for next week. I think one of two camps. One would be many of you will admit to struggling with life. Uh, you have personal habits that are somewhat self-destructive. Um, you do struggle with sin. You'd probably even call it sin. Um, but you don't see, you see these acts as more against yourself and against others. You look more horizontally, and consequently, you look more to therapy. Many people look to therapy rather than repentance and forgiveness. In other words, we struggle with this idea of, yeah, I know my life was broken, and now I need to find some people to help me mend my life. Now, I'm not disparaging all therapy. Please don't hear me say that. But when we look at our lives and some of the choices we make, some of the repeated choices, choices, we tend to think I need treatment or I need counsel or I need help, some form of treatment. It, it, would, be, it would be somewhat analogous to that representative in New York. If you remember him, he was caught in a sexting scandal. And if you remember, he denied it, which is generally the response. And then he admitted it partially and was going to continue to seek help while in office. He eventually, of course, stepped down, and then resigned. But here's what a spokesperson said about him, that he is going to take a leave of absence to seek professional treatment to focus on becoming a better husband and healthier person. Uh, In light of that, he will take a brief absence from the House of Representatives so that he can get evaluated and map out a course of treatment to make himself well. Now, there is a place for therapy. I'm not denying that. But I think we can tend to write off our struggles and issues no longer as sin, but as just struggles or diseases or problems that I have. And the reason I raise this is it because it cuts off part of the reason that Jesus came to save us from our sins, that many of these issues are sins that need to be repented of before God. And we don't see them vertically. I quoted a long time to you in a survey of Americans, only 17% of people felt that their sins were against God. In other words, they understand their sins are horizontal, but they don't go vertical with it. And if you don't go vertical with your sins, then you don't need Christ. You just need a therapist, or you need help, or you need treatment. As opposed to saying, no, I need God to come down and change my nature and put his spirit within me that I can live like his son. That's the loss for the folks who will admit to it, but not scream out to God. Now, there's others of you here who will not only admit, but you will acknowledge you're helpless apart from Christ. This, I would argue, is the Christian, that he admits that he's absolutely helpless. He needs this divine son of God, son of man, to come down and save us, to deliver us, to wash us of the guilt that we have, and to deliver us from ourselves, giving us the spirit that we can live a new life. That is the Christian. The Christian understands that when it says that Jesus will come and save us from our sins. That's exactly what he came to do. It's interesting. Uh, I remember reading something from Don Carson that said, if, if God thought we needed political reformation, he could have sent a politician. If God thought we needed some physical restoration, he could have sent a, some doctor. But he sends us Jesus to save us from our sins. That's the fundamental issue we have. So just join with me, if you will, 
Um, I want to take a few minutes, and we do have a few minutes, actually. I was faster than I thought. We'll get to the state game. I'm pulling for him. Um, and and we have, you know, we've been having a lot of people in the sanctuary here, which is fantastic. Uh, but it makes praying harder because we can't hear you. The intention of this time, frankly, is to just give you a foretaste of what heaven's going to be like. You know, when you get to heaven and you see God and you're with all the other saints, there's going to be a time of celebration and rejoicing. It isn't going to be simply be the white gown singing hymns all day long or choruses or whatever your favorite is. It won't be that. Won't that be interesting? What it's going to be is it's going to be a rejoicing over who God is. And it's going to provide for us a great measure of joy as we see him and speak about him to him, but also to one another. That's really what we're doing here. And so when we have a time of prayer following the word, the word is to govern our prayer. And so we can give words of thanks or praise or or, or we can ask God for things. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. So let's ask him for things. But we're doing it as a body because we've all been affected by the same word. What I would ask you to do is just do it loudly so that we can hear you and I can say amen when you pray. And do it briefly because with this many people, I imagine God's moving on the hearts of a number and there is room for plenty to pray. So let me begin and then, um, and then Daniel will close us in just a moment. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ uh, taking on our flesh and dwelling among us. Father, would you grant us grace to run to him, even in our sin, that we would find him sufficient and strong to save, to deliver us, to give us hope in the midst of the various struggles that we have. Thank you.